Hello, everyone. This is Victor Jackson. Welcome to the Bible Centered Podcast. Now, we talked about um, yesterday the parables of Jesus and how Jesus was a prophet without honor. Uh, many have asked about the Apple subscriptions and the Spotify subscriptions. We will be releasing content uh, there as well. Today is just going to be a great day. I'm excited about breaking down the word of God with you today. For those of you that asked about my daughter, Mia, she's doing well. She's a month old. Uh, my wife has just been doing an, a phenomenal job. Uh, give honor to her. Let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 14 and verse 1. Matthew uh, chapter 14 and verse 1, starting a new chapter today. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus. And said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said unto her, It is not lawful, said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have her. And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she, being before instructed of her mother, said, Give me here John the Baptist's heads. And a charger. And the king was sorry, nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and, th and them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her. And he sent and beheaded John in the prison. And his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship to a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a desert place. And the time is now past. Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. But Jesus said unto them, They need not depart, give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, We have here but five loaves and two fishes. And he said, Bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and the two fishes and looking up to heaven, he blessed and break and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. 
And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up of the fragments that remained 12 baskets full. Last scripture, verse 21. And they that had eaten were about 5,000 men beside women and children. Um, this morning, I want to talk about uh, the dance between the anointing and the desert. The dance between the anointing and the desert. The theme of Matthew is fulfillment. Matthew is writing to the Jews to persuade them that Jesus is the Christ. Not only is he the Christ to them, but he is the Christ, the Savior of the world. And this type of message caused a lot of resistance in this time because everyone had a certain thought process of who the Messiah would be. And Jesus very much disrupted their concept of the Messiah. Very much messed up their idea of what the Messiah would look like and what the Messiah would be. Now, we see as Jesus' effectiveness increases, his adversity increases. The more he does, the more he is resisted. And isn't this the song and the dance between the anointing and the desert? It seems that you really cannot be anointed without a desert. And the desert's purpose is to provoke an anointing. It seems like we cannot escape the desert. No matter how anointed we are, no matter how much God's hand is on us, it seems we cannot escape resistance. We cannot escape the desert. We cannot escape hurt. We cannot escape heartache and pain. It seems like there is a rhythm to pain. It seems like there is a rhythm to heartache. There is a rhythm to desert experiences, the ebb and flow of anointing and desert, anointing and pain, anointing and rejection, anointing and hurt, an anointing uh, without honor, anointing. There is a dance that takes place between the two because it seems like for every great anointing, there is a great desert experience. And that for every great anointing, there is great pain and heartache that comes out of it. We see this dance all throughout the Old Testament. We see this dance all throughout the New Testament. That when you're anointing, it's like an 
when you're anointed, it's like an invitation to adversity. It's like an invitation to resistance. David gets anointed and two aspects of adversity that he faces are from his brothers and from the giant. Isn't that amazing that once you get anointed, you are qualified to overcome the tension of brothers and the strength of giants. Before the anointing, there's no, there's no room for uh, disagreement. Before the anointing, everything is, is, is ebbing and flowing as usual. But the anointing gives an invitation to a desert. From that anointing uh, of David, he was sent into a cave of process. He ran for his life. He got resisted by the king. There is a dance between the anointing and the desert. Joseph has this anointing. He has this dream, and it's, it gives an invite to a pit. What a reward for a dream. What a reward for a dream. Now you're ready for the pit. Wow, what a graduation. What a what a what a graduation ceremony to walk across the stage. Where are you going after graduating with this dream? Well, the first degree that I get is the pit degree. And after I graduate from the pit, I get promoted into Potiphar's house. And after I get my master's in Potiphar's house, then I get to go and get my doctorate in prison. And after I get my doctorate in prison, now I'm ready for the dream and the anointing to be fulfilled. What, what is this saying? This is saying, do not perceive the bad in your life as a sign that you are not valuable or as a sign that you are not worthy or as a sign that God doesn't have anything great for you. I have found it to be the contrary, that, that when there is a desert, there's an anointing nearby. That, that if you're in a desert experience, if you are in a dry experience, if you are suffering from pain and heartache, that that it's not because God's mad, it's, it's because that, that you are anointed and that he is preparing you for something great. Something about that desert that cultivates character. There's something about that desert that, that, that cultivates a, a dependency upon God. There is a dance between the anointing and the desert. There is an ebb and flow. There is a rhythm. There is a there is a there is a a a coordinated effort between the anointing and the desert. No one escapes it. Abraham has to know how it feels to be at tension with Lot. 
David has to know how it feels to be at tension. Joseph has to know. Jacob has to be so discouraged by what's going on in his family that he lays his head on a pillow in a rough place, in a dark place. He has to know what that looks like and feels like in order to get the, the dream of the angels of God ascending and descending on the ladder. The tough place, the desert place, many times comes before the vision. The tough place sometimes is the birth of the vision. I say all that to say that you see this rhythm throughout Matthew as we're leading to uh, the climax of his book. Matthew 16 is the climax of his book is where he starts prophesying about, about his own death on the cross. It's where everything shifts. Everything is going upward. Resistance is increasing. But by the time Matthew 16, everything starts leading towards the cross. So let's get into this. Verse 1. At the time Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Uh, Herod is suffering from a guilty conscience because he beheads John in prison. And now because of Jesus' effectiveness and because of Jesus' fame going above and beyond, his guilty conscience is provoking a false narrative that somehow this is John risen from the dead. Isn't it amazing what the guilty conscience would do? A guilty conscience will perceive things that aren't actually there. Have you ever dealt with somebody that has done something to you or wrong to you and they get guilty and they get so guilty that they project their own fears upon you, that they project your motive, they project their own motives upon you because of a guilty conscience? This is what's happening with Herod and Antipas. He is the son of Herod the Great. He doesn't accomplish near what Herod the Great accomplishes, uh, but he is guilty in that lineage of destroying prophets. So he is nervous because he thought he quieted one resistance, one voice, just to hear that there's another prophetic voice rising up. You can never destroy the prophetic. You may be able to kill the prophet, but you can't kill the prophetic. You can, you can kill the messenger, but you can't kill his message. And listen to, listen to this. Verse 3, it explains how John's demise came to be. For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said unto him, it is not lawful for thee to have her. Now, it's giving the display here because Herod and Tip Antipas was divorced. And while he was divorced, Herodias was married 
to his brother Philip. And as he was married to his brother um, Philip, they divorced. Herodias and Philip had a daughter named Salome. They divorced, and while Philip's still alive, Herod Antipas decides to marry his brother's wife. And John began to preach under the anointing that you're not supposed to do that according to the Levitical laws. And the Bible says that because of Herodias, that Herod Antipas put John in prison. Now, you could already see the manipulative workings of Herodias because she has a hold on Herod where she can spin him however she pleases. That's what the word manipulate means. The word many hand pulsate to steer. It means when a hand steers you in a, in a negative direction for personal benefit. That's what the word manipulate, manipulate means. Herodias steered him with her hand to a de, her desired location that was negative for him, but it was positive for her. So John gets cast into prison. It's amazing, uh, the anointing of John is that his anointing is so great, he cannot compromise. His desert was so great, he couldn't compromise. It's amazing that when you're anointing, you just can't compromise even if the consequences are death. Even if the consequences are isolation. Even if the consequences are losing a lot of friends. Is what I said years ago, acceptance has destroyed more people than rejection ever has. And this dance, this song between the anointing and the desert, it's amazing how when you're anointing, it's an invitation for conflict. When God anointed Jeremiah, he said, before I formed you in the belly, I knew you and I ordained you to root out, to, 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 to destroy, to build, and to plant. That with Jeremiah's anointing came tension with the comfortable, came tension with the corrupt, came tension with the systems of the world. The anointing is a disruptor. Jeremiah was in such resistance with the world that he said that he cried out to God, God, you have made me a man of contention from my mother's womb. That it's like, no matter what, because of the anointing, I can't get along with the affairs of the world. I, I am set against it. With the anointing comes an invitation for conflict. And, and I know that's tough because if you're like me, you want to avoid conflict. I don't want anything to do with conflict. I just want to love people. I just want, I love everybody. I love people that hate me. I love people that love me. I love strangers. I love friends. I love family. But I have realized in the past 15 years that if you're going to have a strong anointing, 
There's going to be some forces that do not like that anointing. And you, whether you want to or not, there's going to be some conflict. And there's going to be some conflict that's going to lead you into some desert experiences. And the desert experience do not disqualify the anointing. It helps grow the anointing. Who am I talking on here that has been in a desert experience and you felt alone? That's what the desert is. It's a wasteland. It's a lonely place. Everything anointed has to visit the desert. Jesus had to go into the desert for 40 days before he could start his ministry. John had to go to the desert. The Bible says that he was in the wilderness until the day of his showing. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Nobody knew his name. Nobody knew who he was, but he was in the desert being prepared until the time of his showing. And what God does with anointed folk is he will put them in the desert until the time of his showing. And there is a dance that is cultivated Oh, between the anointing and the desert. He sends you to the desert to teach you to dance. There's a dance. There is an ebb and flow. There is, there is an anointing, and then there is the pain. And there is the anointing, and then there is the heartache. There's the anointing, and then there is the betrayal. There's the anointing, and then there is the, the unfortunate circumstances. And these, these dances are not out of step. It's very in tune. And there's something beautiful being cultivated between you and God in this dance between the anointing and the desert. So he could not keep his mouth shut. All he had to do was keep his mouth shut so he could keep his life. But when you're anointing, anointed, you can't keep your mouth shut. <laughs> you have to say something. You have to behave a certain way. You have to live a certain way. Matthew's reason for telling this story in John is, is number twofold number one to tell the facts but number two to also not uh glorify john the baptist because during the time that matthew was writing people had a mythological view of john the baptist even perhaps trying to push him into uh, some deified form because he was so anointed so Matthew brings down John's humanity that he was in prison and number two, that he was beheaded. And everything, if you notice, Matthew puts John's story and connects it to Jesus' story, saying that John was important, but his importance was only in context to Jesus. What made John of significant importance was that he was preparing the way for the Messiah. Isn't it amazing how the desert prepares the way for the anointed one? Isn't it amazing that John's name means the Lord is gracious? And it's, it's an ironic paradox that the Lord can be gracious in a desert. Verse 5, And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she being before instructed of her mother said, give me here John the Baptist's head and a charger. 
you see Herodias not only manipulating her husband, but also manipulating her daughter to get her will. We got to be careful with manipulation. You have heard me say it for years that a manipulator first will use guilt to try to make you feel guilty until you do their will. If guilt doesn't work, then they'll reach for another weapon called anger, and they will use anger to try to bend you to their will. If anger doesn't work, then they'll turn to pity and self-pity to try to make you feel sorry for them to do their will. And when none of those works, you have escaped the grip of a manipulator. Herodias is a master manipulator. I'm sure she's the one that taught her daughter to dance moves to be able to get that king's attention. Knowing the weaknesses of her husband and knowing her daughter is younger, she instructs her to dance sensually before the court to try to entice the king to say, I'll give unto you up to half of my kingdom. Now think about this moment. I'm about to show you the the price and the worth of the anointing. Think about this moment. This girl gets invited by the king to, he, she, he said, I will give you unto, up until the half of my kingdom. And she looks at this king in the face and says, give me the prophet's head. Wow. She could have asked for treasure. She could have asked for rubies. She could have asked for a house. She could have asked for this, for that. She could have asked to be married to someone. But she said, I don't want half your kingdom. I want that anointed preacher. Mm. She said, forget the kingdom. Give me the preacher. Forget the kingdom. Give me that anointed person. She said, I'd rather have one anointed person than half of your kingdom. Do you understand why hell has a target on your back right now? You are more valuable to him anointed than half of his kingdom. The Bible says that the, in the Holy Ghost that the angels desire to look into it. Now, let me tell you something. Lucifer is a fallen angel. And he is attracted to anybody that has been endued with the spirit. And you are more of more valuable to him than half of his assets, half of his kingdom. She said, I don't want the kingdom. Give me the anointing. You're valuable. That's why you've been attacked since you were a child. That's, that's why hell puts you through child abuse. That's why hell puts you through domestic violence. That's why hell puts you through a divorce. That's why hell puts you through depression. That's why hell has been fighting you with anxiety. That's why hell has, fight, has fought you with worry. That's why hell has fought you with anxiety. That's why hell has fought you with fear. That's why hell has come against you so strong because it fears the anointing upon your life. 
before you even knew you had an anointing, you were fighting. Some of you have been fighting since you've come out of your mother's womb. Some of you have been fighting since, since you have learned to talk. Some of you were like Jacob in the womb, struggling in the womb, reaching for Esau's heel. In the womb, he was struggling with no, no, with limited consciousness. He's in a fight. Some of you have been in a fight since you came out of the belly because hell has marked you because he knows that your anointing, that your voice can negatively affect his agenda. God, in the deserts of life, he is developing your voice. The vocal cords, a voice cannot come forth properly without resistance. That's why we have vocal cords. The vocal cords, these are resistance. And watch this. This is where you find your sound. Every person's resistance is different. That's why our voices sound different. Not because of uh, our, how loud we are but because of the resistance that's in our vocal cords. The resistance is how you find your voice. The resistance is what gives your voice uniqueness. That's why we don't sound the same. Just as our fingerprints are unique, our voices are unique. Our vocal cords, what's in there, the, the flaps, these are resistant agents that create beautiful voices. Who am I talking to right now? There's a dance between the anointing and the desert. And, that, and it's in that dance you find your voice. It's in that dance of resistance that beauty is cultivated. That beauty, that a beautiful song is created through that tension. Oh my word. Every, every so somewhere there, there's tension. There's a song and there's a dance between the anointing and the desert. She wanted his, his anointing more than she wanted half of the kingdom. In Ecclesiastes, it says it this way, dead flies caused the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. That hell just wants to put one fly in the anointing to corrupt it because it's that valuable. He'll try to put a fly of bitterness, a fly of lust, a fly of greed, a fly of immorality to try to taint your anointing because it's that valuable. You have an anointing to shift and shake the world. He gives an anointing that you might minister unto him. Anointing is divine enablement to accomplish your purpose and the hell wants to stop your purpose. The anointing was to be smeared 
it was to be smeared, it was to be covered, smeared on the head. It was a divine marker that you don't belong to you, you don't belong to the devil, you belong to God. That's what hell's afraid of. That's what hell's afraid of. She said, give me here John the Baptist's head on the charger. And the king was sorry, nevertheless, for his, the oath's sake, and then which said with the mid meat, he commanded it to be given her. He was sorry, he didn't want to do it, but he said the oath in front of everybody, and you don't want a king that goes back on his word, so he had to fulfill that oath. And he sent and beheaded John in the prison. That, that was the only way you were going to silence the prophet. It's the only way you're going to silence the prophetic. You can imagine John in that prison still preaching. Saying, Herod, you're still wrong. Herodias, I know you hear me. You know he was still preaching in there. The only way to shut him up was to behead him. Hmm. The head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel. And she brought it to her mother. I don't know what the mother did with that head of the prophet. I don't know if it was something like a, uh, I don't know if it was something like how people put deers up in, in their offices and put pigs up and bears and I don't know. But hell desires to put every prophet's head on its wall. Hunters, they do it with bears and, and, and different animals. With hell, he likes to put heads of prophets on his walls. It's the only way he could silence them is to kill them. That's why every apostle except John was martyred. Because a voice that's cultivated by the desert is a, is a danger to hell's agenda. I made up my mind a long, a long time ago. I remember April 2020. It was so, this was about a month before uh, I went to Minneapolis to go and uh, minister and preach to the police officers and the protesters uh, during a time of tragedy. I remember a month before that event, I was in prayer because of how tense the world was with COVID and everything was shut down and churches were shut down and it was scary. Remember being in prayer. Uh, uh, I remember being in prayer. Oh, God.
I remember being in prayer and I didn't know what would happen. I saw the resistance in the world. And I had a Gethsemane moment where I decided in that moment in April 2020 that no matter what happens to me, I will never stop preaching the gospel. I decided I don't care if they threaten to kill me. I don't care if they threaten to put me in prison. I don't care how many friends I lose. I will never stop preaching the gospel. I will never stop preaching the truth, no matter what friends I gain or lose on the way, no matter what money I lose, no matter what fame or popularity that I lose, I will not stop preaching the word of God. And ever since I made that moment, yes, there's been resistance. Yes, there's been loss of friendships and loss of things like that. But I'm telling you what, I will not be deceived by the winds of, of, of the false doctrines in the world. I told my church uh, two weeks ago, the church that God has privileged me to pastor and, and start, I told them, I said, any spirit that is trying to seduce you to hate someone I said, it is a spirit straight from the pit of hell. Any spirit in the culture that is trying to make it righteous or popular to hate people or groups of people is, is something straight from the pit of hell. Straight from the pit of hell. And I see the tensions going on in the world. Some people saying, hey, hey, come on, hate Israel. Hey, come on, hate Palestine. This is false doctrine. You are commanded to love everybody. You don't have to agree with the preferences or the decisions or anything like that. Love is not blind. Love doesn't mean there shouldn't be accountability. With love also comes judgment. But this is this is a, a hill that I'm willing to die on love and unconditional love because the whole book only makes sense through the lens of love. But I made that decision. Any spirit that's trying to seduce you to hate, whether it be a political opponent or politics, whatever, if it's trying to bring you in to hate somebody, it's from the devil and it's false doctrine. I'm telling you, I'm delivering somebody right now. I'm delivering somebody right now that's listening. You can disagree, but you cannot hate them. You can have an opinion or a preference, but I'm asking you to have your opinions and your preferences through the love of God because there's not one person in this world that Jesus hasn't died for. Every person in the world Jesus died for, every Hindu, every Buddhist, every Muslim, every anyone in Confucianism, every atheist, he 
died for the sins of the whole world. My friend, that is sound doctrine, and that's something I'm willing to die for. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is why we named our church Bible Center of Orlando, Centro Biblico de Orlando. Because we wanted everything to be Bible-centered because that's the thing that's going to be lasting. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall never pass away. So all the trends and the, and the, and the traditions and the ebb and flows of hate, that's all going to come and go. We'll f- people are going to find somebody new to hate tomorrow. They'll find a new cause to hate next week. But the one thing that's going to last through the times of hate and destruction and pain is the word of God. And that, my friend, is something I'm willing to die for. And this may not be popular. People may be logging off as I'm talking about this. But I'm telling you, there's a broken world that needs the love of God. And I understand with this anointing standing on this book that that means that there's deserts coming. And that means I've been through deserts. That means there's resistance and all that. Guess what? Here I am. I'm going to obey God. Because guess what? I have learned to love the dance between the anointing and the desert. Stay on the word, guys. Stay on the word. Have your opinions. Have your preferences. Have them. But don't you dare hate anybody. Because even Jesus said, out of the heart proceeds evil things such as hatred. Hatred is a vice of the flesh. Hatred is something that comes from the devil. You are allowing the devil to influence you when you hate somebody. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. I'm trying to help you. But my point is that I made that decision back in April 2020 that I was willing to die for it. I think everybody that is going to walk in an authentic anointed uh, is going to ruffle some feathers because it's not popular. But I'm not trying to be popular. I'm trying to be biblical. Whatever crowds come or go, I'm, I'm trying to be biblical. I don't do this for money. If I wanted money, I'd have kept playing basketball. I gave up hundreds of thousands in scholarships, millions of dollars, and potential playing professional overseas, which I still have friends playing professionally in the NBA and abroad. I came too far to be compromised by money, greed, or fame. I gave all that up. That's all the altar. I crucified that when I first came to God. But I will be biblical no matter who doesn't like that. I didn't give up everything to fit in. 
I gave up everything to obey the word because the word of God changed my life. And I've seen it change too many lives. And all I feel in this podcast, for those that are listening, all I feel is your love and your heartbeat. I feel your tears. I feel that I am uttering your motives. I'm putting words to what you feel in your spirit. When, when the world is trying to make you cheer for people getting killed and you're cheering for people dying, you have lost your way. You've lost your way. Because every soul that dies in this world, Jesus loves and he died for. This is what it's about. It's the, it's the dance between the anointing and the desert. John had to have a backbone in order to do what he did, and he was willing to go to prison for it. <clears throat> and I think anyone anointed has to have a conviction. The desert helps you develop a conviction to develop to, to stand against the resistance that comes with God's word and God's law. That's what Jesus said. He said, listen, y'all, y'all, you guys put the prophets in dungeons. You guys, you guys persecuted the prophets because while everyone's lying and saying one thing to keep their position and to keep their, their standing, word to the broken, to keep their standing, there are some people that are going to declare God's word even when it doesn't feel good. Now, you go read the Old Testament. That's what those prophets did. Holding people accountable is, is not hate, it's love. Imagine my son wanting to go I love my son, but imagine him going to uh, touch a hot stove. Out of love, I'm going to give him judgment. I'm going to say, that's wrong. Don't do that again. Out of love. It would not be love for me to stay silent. Love is not excuse for behavior. That's why the Bible says, preach the truth in love. And that's what I'm doing right now. His disciples came and took the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. Now look at this. See, John is, has these desert experiences. And now Jesus, after he hears of John, he goes to the desert. There is a dance between the anointing and the desert. That everybody 
has to learn the steps. He departed into a desert place, and when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. Matthew is showing the popularity of Jesus. Now listen, he look at the contrast. This is what he's showing the Jews. He's showing that, that, that John was the precursor. And that when John passed off the scene, Jesus' popularity increased even more, so much to where that they followed him on foot out of the cities. They left the cities and came to the desert. They left the cities without even eating to come and be ministered to by the bread of life. And they said, my bread for life the bread of life is more important than the bread of man. And they were willing to sit on the hot sand to hear this man speak. They were willing to suffer dehydration. They were willing to starve because they were being filled by his word. Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a desert place and the time is now past. Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. Look what this is. See, this is what I'm trying to help someone with that's listening. This is a desert place and the time is now past. You see, the disciples felt like the desert could not be a place for the miraculous. They tried to disqualify the possibility of a miracle because of there being a desert. This is a desert place and the time is now past. They try to say, listen, you can't do a miracle here. You can't feed anybody here. This is a desert. Everyone has been trained to look at the desert as a place of opposition and as a place where nothing could happen and as a place where nothing grows and where as a place that nothing can be multiplied. But the desert is still a place that God can move. So this is a desert place. Just because you're in the desert doesn't mean that God can't do a miracle. That's the dance between the anointing and the desert. See, in the desert, somehow you're still multiplying. You're still growing. You're still increasing. You're still helping. You're still distributing. You're still ministering to people. They said, Two things that happen when you're in a desert. They try to disqualify the miracle and they try to say that the time is now past, meaning we got to find a better time for a miracle. The time is past. The time is past. Who am I ministering to on this podcast that people keep telling you your time is up, that your best days are behind you, that it's getting too late for God to do what he said he would do? The time is now past, but I'm telling you, as long as Jesus is present, there could be multiplication in the desert, and the time is always now. You say, I'm praying for an open door. Well, I'm about to give you revelation. Jesus is the door. And as long as you have Jesus, you always have access to an open door. There's a door in your desert. 
said, send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves, vic themselves victuals. But Jesus said unto them, they need not depart. Give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, we have here but five loaves and two fishes. And he said, bring them hither to me. Bring me what you have in the desert, in this dance. Bring Jesus what you have that's limited. And he'll make it into something unlimited. Bring him what you have that's not enough. And he'll make it into something that's more than enough. Bring me what you have that is impossible. And I will break the impossible to make something possible. See, the, the difference between impossible and possible is something being broken off. Guess what's, guess what's being broken off? I'm. I am. He breaks off I am. I am. I'm. He breaks off I am and to make the impossible possible. You see, the only way with you, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God will allow brokenness to happen to reduce the I out of you. Ah, to take the ego, that's what the Greek word is for I, ego. He'll break your ego to make all things possible. Everything's possible as long as you get I out of the way. Everything's possible as long as you get ego out of the way. Impossible. He takes out the I'm. You ever said that so much in the desert? I'm about to. I'm about to. I'm about to. I'm about to. God will allow brokenness in the desert to take the what I'm about to do to what God is about to do. With you, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. He said, bring it to me. Bring me what you have. I'm the source of multiplication. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and two fishes and looking up to heaven, he blessed and break and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude and they did all eat and were filled and they took up the fragments that remained 12 baskets full and they that had eaten were about 5,000 men beside women and children. They started with five loaves and two fishes. After the brokenness, they had leftovers, 12 baskets full. There's always more that you have after the broken season. After the desert. This is the song. This is the dance between the anointing and the desert. There's always something more after the dance. Why? After the dance, there's a table prepared before you in the presence of your enemies. And he anoints your head with oil and your cup runs over. But what Matthew is showing is that Jesus is the bread which came down from heaven. He is the manna which came down from heaven. He is the source of life. He is the bread of life. And notice Jesus doesn't distribute the bread himself. He distributes the bread to the disciples. 
and the disciples distribute the bread to the people. Why? This is Jewish territory. So what do they do? They take up 12 baskets full. They have 12 baskets left. How many tribes of Israel are there? 12 tribes. So what he's showing them here is, and this is what Matthew is pushing toward, is that Jesus distributes the bread to the disciples. The disciples will have the responsibility to first distribute the bread of life to the 12 tribes of Israel. They have 12 baskets full to give to the 12 tribes. So first, the people that are going to get the gospel first, the bread of life first, are the Jewish people. Are you getting what I'm saying? And the bread just keeps on multiplying. You never run out of Jesus to give people. It just keeps on multiplying. It just keeps on. Every time it's broken, it just keeps on multiplying. Every time someone says Jesus isn't God, he just keeps on multiplying. Every time someone says, well, well Jesus can't do that, he just keeps on multiplying. It's amazing what God can do. He knows how to destroy unbelief with multiplication. The bread just won't stop. The bread just keeps growing. The bread just keeps on expanding. There is a dance between the anointing and the desert because it's in that dance that you multiply. It's in that dance that you grow. It's in that dance where you accomplish great things for God. Matthew is getting us ready He's hastening to the cross, hastening to the concept of the cross in Matthew 16. That's the, con, the, 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 the apex, that is the climax of the gospel of Matthew. And right here, he's showing fulfillment of the manna coming down from heaven. Right now, he's showing fulfillment in what John did as the one, the messenger that sent before his face. He is tying the Old Testament to Jesus, showing that Jesus fulfills everything. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Jesus is everything that they need. He's showing the Jews, stop looking for bread, stop looking for manna. It's all dead and gone. Now direct your attention to the bread of life who has more than enough for you. There's still 12 baskets full. There's a song and there is a dance between the anointing and the desert. Share this podcast episode with somebody. It's going to encourage somebody. Love someone today. Be an encouragement. Give yourself to the word. God bless. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, for more information, you can follow my social media page, Victor M. Jackson, or you could come visit us in Orlando, Florida at Bible Center of Orlando. Thank you for joining us. God bless.